for our viewers at home. <clears throat> you may be wondering of the decor that is behind me. And just so that they're fully aware, we are at an Episcopal um, sanctuary in which you're now privy to see that certain holidays carry more weight than others. But nonetheless, <clears throat> as you know, in practicing the Reformed faith, we see the Resurrection Sunday every Sunday. And what's beautiful about having that mentality and mindset is that it's a show to the world, again, that God has provided his appointed men to care for the souls of his people. And so if you are watching this for the first time, albeit uh, this might be a little bit new, there is not a Easter message that I want to convey, but nonetheless, the message, if you are moved by the Spirit, should nonetheless prove effective, of which you will see yourself as what God has intended man to see themselves and that their need for Christ is very apparent and very clear. In honor of Captain, that was my commercial. Ah. Hmm. But that being said, we now come to continue in our exposition of the Gospel of John, and we've arrived at chapter number nine. Now, albeit, I was curious because and taking you know, me and the pastors have time and time talked about how we want to approach things, but looking at how we've been progressing, it seemed that as I came to chapter 9, it came as one particular thought. And not so much the thought, but the process of which the story unfolds, it's, it's very seamless. There's not a break, as you would notice in chapter number 8, where we have contention on the first 12 verses, and in of which, by verses 12 to the end of chapter, you have a dissertation to which the Messiah takes. Um, unlike chapter 7, of which it is the continual day upon the first day of which the ceremony were to take place. And you have those breaks in between. This particular chapter has the process of being the entire day. But why did I stop where I stopped today? Is because I want to make this sermon also as a standalone. And the reason be it, is you're going to see as we read the first five verses, not only was the question apparent to the day that they were in, but it is still apparent even to us. So with that being said, I actually titled this one in particular, So That the Works of God Might Be Displayed. Our scripture text is John 9, verses 1 through 5, and it reads, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
By verse 4, the Messiah continues, We must carry out the works of him who sent me, as long as it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. By verse 5, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Amen. Shall we now let the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we do thank you on this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord. You made us mindful that we are able-bodied, <laughs> able-bodied to be here to give glory unto you. Such a convenience of such faculties that we take for granted. It is in this, Lord, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown us. And you will now show us continually in your message in which you revive to the people that such cares that we have of this world it is by your ever merciful hand, as of which, as I give and convey this message to your people, be with me and with to them. Let them have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive your word. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So then, this sermon might be emotionally charged. I'm going to say that now. I even thought about it even when I was writing it. And I considered some of the words that I was going to take because certain feelings can be brought back that you may have buried X amount of years ago. And the reason why I say that is because the very question the disciples state made me pause. Because I had asked this question myself in some degree and to some capacity so for the apostle to record this adage is very important many individuals who may be sitting here watching young and old children parents even grandparents have posed this thought at one point or another and if you just look to the left and look to the right, to those who are your loved ones. And as you look to their face, some of those events might rear back. Expressions might be shown because all those memories were stored and dormant. Because it was very difficult to bring it back. Trials, tribulations, adversities. They've caused you to think, why me? Why me? So it's with this. My attention was not so that I can drum up those feelings again, but let alone when you read this first person, this first portion of John 9, you can't help but have this same thought process. So taking a closer look, scripture testifies and that the sufferings we receive in humanity and that what we endured proceeds from sin, albeit all is drawn from original sin. I take you back down memory lane. Uh, first, from the very mouth of God, the punishment that was bestowed onto Adam for his disobedience was passed down to his posterity, as are we, his posterity. And with Eve being his helpmate, she provided the vessel and the vehicle of which the posterity was to come into this world. I bring to you Genesis 3.16. To Eve, in pain, you will bring forth children. 
nonetheless, the warning was conveyed because of their disobedience. And as Adam being the trump card, he was told to him, this is the difficult portion to which you will receive upon disobedience. And the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And in that pain, did Eve, he can't even imagine that if she gave birth to her child, would it live? Because what was guaranteed, even if he were to live a certain life, death was around the corner. Upon which this death would take a look untold. He will be told in Genesis 3.19, Adam, till you return to the ground from which you were taken from it, you are dust and dust you shall return. It is David who concur that because of Adam's sin and that it had to be bestowed down to his posterity. In Psalm 51 verse 5, we were brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Taking it down, even going forward, David is speaking of which sin, an original sin has taken fold of humanity. Solomon, his own son, being wise, explains it well, even in his own words. Ecclesiastes 5, I'm sorry, yes, Ecclesiastes 5, 15 through 16. As he had come naked from his mother's room, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. By verse number 16, this is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. With harmony to the new, Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man's sin into the world, death reigned through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And by verse 1 Corinthians 15, 12, for it is in Adam, they all died. Now, albeit from original sin and this particular portion that I'm bringing is just trying to give you some particular context because, again, the question that the disciples are posing here can't be coming out of thin air and it can't come out of nowhere. In fact, one of the things that they were even taught was the transmigration of souls. And one of the things that you're going to see, especially as we get to John 9, 34, that same adage was bought by the Pharisees. So for the Messiah to even begin to explain and correct them, and particularly of the error that they had already bestowed, told you where their mindset was. For us, though, it is important that we must understand how we as humanity took to the corruptible nature that we are indwelled with today. But to the degree of that corruptible nature, there are various aptitudes or various degrees to which it will take. What do I mean by this? Originally, we have original sin that was bestowed on all men. 
But from that sin, we have two particular branches. You have your particular sins and you have your corporate sins. What do I mean by this? Your personal sins, I bring to you Cain murdering Abel. Genesis 3, 6 through 8. How about your corporate sins? I bring to you the great flood. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Genesis 7, 17 through 23. And it reads even here, The wickedness of man was so great in the earth and that every intent, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How about the Tower of Babel? Genesis 11, 1 through 9, especially verses 4 through 6 and 7. They thought they will build themselves a tower up to the heavens to make a name for themselves. <laughs> the Lord corrected them very greatly. Sodom and Gomorrah's depravity. depravity. Genesis 18, 20 through 21. Genesis 19, 4 through 9. And verses 12 through 27. You know, there's an idiom out there that says misery enjoys company. I think they should replace that with sin enjoys company. Now, given which I've given to you from original sin, we have our personal and corporate sins. But then, in my same portion with bringing at the idiom, personal sins can lead to corporate sins. And albeit corporate sins can lead to personal sins. How so? Well, in examples of personal sins leading to corporate sins, we have Abraham and Abelech. Genesis 20. In fact, how about this going down further? Amongst brothers, Joseph and his own brothers. Genesis 37, 12 through 36. Now those seem to be Pretty particular. How something very easy. King Saul and his arm barrier. First Samuel 31, 4 through 5. And then it even gets more complicated. How about David? And all of Second Samuel 11, of which first in verses 1 through 4, he illicitly takes Bathsheba. By verse 5, Bathsheba is then pregnant. By verses 6, through 21, David sacrifices Uriah with the help of his own generals. To which, by verses 27, because of his sin, one, his illicit child is taken by the Lord. Second Samuel 12, 14, and his kingdom is divided. Second Samuel 12, 7 through 12. You have, like I said, Personal sins here that led to corporate sins. Corporate sins that lead to personal sins. How about Lot's wife? Genesis 19, 7 and verses 24 through 27. How about Moses leading the uh, Israel into, into the wilderness? And they provide the golden calf with the help of Aaron. Exodus 32, 1 through 4. And then Moses himself. Striking the rock, not obeying the word of the Lord and how he was to proceed. Numbers 21 through 13. Sin enjoys company. So it makes sense when the disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned?
this man or his parents. And what's interesting, as I will now begin with the particular chapter of this man, he was blind. That was his decay. It doesn't state that he stole something. It doesn't state that he was a man of malice. We don't know. What we know is that because of his appearance, he lacked a, a faculty that we take for granted, our ability to see. So then in which when our Messiah walks down, he has compassion to see him. And in note, they even said it wasn't by accident. He was blind from birth. Psalms 51 verse 5. Very clear. It's made very apparent here. But nonetheless, this action by the apostle and that John will actually notate this is to show the timetable of one, the wish of decay of the man's body hold, but then also number two, the corruptible decay that shows with our own parents and their punishment being passed down to humanity. It's again, it's like saying, who are we to say if one is going to come out whole or in half when they're born? And the scary thing is, Who's to say if the child being born will even come out to be alive? Scary reality. It's a scary reality. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the sheer point that this adage is brought because of the man in his particular birth is going to be of certain things that we ourselves cannot know the hand of God. I bring to you Ecclesiastes 7 verse 5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how the bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. And to make all things... We cannot say if they will be able-bodied and not. Job 14, verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of a unclean thing? No one. Absolutely no one. You just don't know. You just don't know. But that's okay. Because you see here, you see here, conveyed in verse 1, as he passed by and he saw the man blind from birth, it is showed that until the appointed time, this man was to meet the Messiah. And his time was that day. And just like us, who come to certain situations, those adversities, trials, and tribulations, were met for an important time until the Messiah or the Spirit in this situation takes hold of your heart and you come to repentance or do you come to thank Him for your, His mercy? Now, the man has endured his whole life until that point 
that he's lost his sight. Does he have a gripe to make? In his feeble mind? Yes, he does. Could he have wondered, God, why did you make me like this? I don't doubt it. But he did not know, and nor did the disciples even were aware of what the Lord's intended work was going to be. <laughs> I bring to you Ecclesiastes 7.13. Consider the work of, the, of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? Therefore, for the disciples to ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would have been blind, born blind even, shows that they understood that the judgments rendered on our temporal bodies because of sin. So therefore, someone must be at fault here. Is it him or is it his parents? Well, then the Lord appointed immediately their error. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. For the Lord is stating, yes, original sin has taken hold of humanity, but the sin of our fathers does not convey the way you would think it would. Now, even so, let's take a closer look even so much at our own lives. Because just put yourself in that shoe and the Messiah standing next to you. I have no doubt one individual, though you may claim Christianity, you you believe the Messiah is walking, God is walking next to you, you will still ask the same question. And what is this error? What is this error that the Lord is trying to convey? I think it's better if we put ourselves in their shoes. I bring to you someone who's been disabled. Let's make it very simplistic. Someone been reduced to a wheelchair to move. And as you see the individual, you compare yourself as an able-bodied person. So then, you either go through two things. You either drum up the sorrow as if you were the Samaritan man who saw the dying Jew on the side of the road. Or you drum up the feeling like, I avoided that uh, catastrophe by being saying, you know what? I have done nothing wrong and have uphold the law of God. So then the individual told you that they were reduced to this after an accident or they suffered from a birth defect. You'll be quick to acknowledge. You know what? You got what you deserve because this is God's punishment. But you forget if you ever did that. Didn't God struck you at one point in time in your life? In fact, God's hand could have been a heavier weight on you than on the lame individual. But you don't remember because he just pushed that memory back to the ether of your mind. So you only concerned yourself to render judgment on the individual. Because of their impairment, you see it as punishment of their sins. Particular or because they may have uh, contributed in corporate. But you forget God may have struck you at one point in your time. You may have lost something and someone. And it even hurts so much as if to remember it again. 
And finally, given the severity of the person's injury, they could have been either had muscle atrophy or they could have had no limbs whatsoever, but they've been reduced to the wheelchair. You get even rendered that this individual could have not been given grace because of what transpired. His parents could have been atheists, right? You didn't know. He told you it was from birth, being told about his family. He told you it was an accident. How did he get in the accident? He was with some friends who were either impaired and they were driving and he was just a cooperator in the car, not even the one driving. And everybody had the whole car left abled. And yet he was the one who lost his legs. So quick to judgment. No. See, you and I, we assume and suppose that the individual will suffer for the rest of their life because, because of their sin with no chance of coming to repentance. But do you know what our Lord said? <laughs> that is not always the case. In fact, taking it back, the individual indicates to you that his parents might be atheists. So then, <laughs> it may have been the sins of the parents. So then our modern minds would run to this. Someone would even quote to me and tell me the second commandment, especially with annex in the later clauses. Thou shalt not bow thou thyself to them or serve them, for I am the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So a Christian who is an antinomian will say, ha you got yourself a schism. And then even a humanist who wants to attack the Christian faith will say, look at this. Huh, looks like God does mess with families. So, what do we say to the sins of our fathers? One of my favorite words. <laughs> For if I bring to you the harmony that is shown between the law and the way that God has conveyed it in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with this, you may have known where you're going to turn to. But, in case you didn't, Ezekiel chapter 18. And there was an old proverb that came to Ezekiel and speaking in the way of the Lord. He says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you people mean by using a proverb about the land of Israel saying, the father eats sour grapes, but it is the children's teeth that have become blunt. As I have lived, declares the Lord God, you certainly are not going to use this proverb anymore. Oh, is that right? In fact, he declares, all souls are mine, by verse 4. The father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. But note by the last clause, the soul who sins will die. So, how do we bring together the harmony between the second commandment and Ezekiel 18 here? Well, let's continue down. First, he actually conveys to the individuals. He shows that if you were to practice righteousness and judgment by verses 5 and 9 of Ezekiel 18, if he does not 
bow down to the mountain shrines, or lift his eyes up to idols, defile his neighbor's wife. He doesn't impress anyone, but he restores and holds to his contractual pledges, does not commit robbery. He even feeds the poor and covers them with clothes. He does not violate his contracts. If he walks in my statutes, keeps my ordinance, as to deal faithfully, he's a righteous man and certainly will live. And from this individual, if he were to have children, by verses 14 through 17, now behold, he's father's son, who has seen all his father has done. But, what's interesting in note, what is interesting to note, if the individual goes the opposite direction, and that the father sins, but the son does not. So that means everything I say to you, just take the contra or the antithesis and the opposite to it. If the son does not do as what his father commit, and for example, as it continues, he fathers a son, who a son who's seen all his father's sins, but he does not do likewise, he too shall also live. So then they're going to say, well, he say he's going to visit the iniquity of the children, even so much so. Then here you go. Disobedient parents can lead to disobedient children. As for this father, because he practiced, robbed his brother, and did was not good amongst the people, he will die of his guilt. And by verse 10 to 13, the father of a violent son who sheds his blood does not, does any one of these things to be a brother, to a brother, though he, the father did not do these things himself, even as he eats the mountains, defile his neighbor's wife, he will not live because he committed all these abominations. Sin enjoys company. Sin enjoys company. But what's amazing, <laughs> I'm conveying this all to you, and yet, the Messiah said it was neither this man nor his parents who sinned. Is it a contra, is there a contradiction behind this? Absolutely not. But what's impressive to note is that because, again, God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, gave this law. So it's proper for him to understand to give the proper answer to it. But it goes back in full circle to my title. Because it was so that the display of the works of God might be shown in him. If there is anything that I could convey today, in my hope to you, it is to show we should not rush to judgment. That's just clear as day. Don't rush to judgment. If a friend tells you they're in need of counseling because something transpired in their life, provide them encouragement because you don't know. You just don't know. But if you encourage them to show that this is going to be so that the work of God might be displayed in your life. That is the proper 
attitude we're to have because the Messiah is showing it to us. Calvin quotes something pretty interesting because, you know, when you're writing these sermons, you just want to make sure, I don't want to say so much you're right, you just don't want to make sure you're heretical. <laughs> and you read, you read of those before you, Richard Baxter, John Gill, John Calvin, some of the more modern people, John Piper, John MacArthur, various others. But what's notate, notating through all, all those commentaries, especially when it comes to this? I think Calvin prodded well, and I'm going to read it. Now, I'm going to say this is rare for me because normally I would take a piecemeal of Calvin's particular quotes because I want to further explain it. But the way that he conveys it so well here, I'm going to read it verbatim, and it's not hard to follow me. We do wrong in this respect that we pronounce condemnation on all ex without exception. What we have lately said is undoubtedly true, and I conveyed this earlier, but that all distresses arises from sin, but God afflicts his own people for various reasons. For as there are some men whose crimes he does not punish in this world, but whose punishment he delays till the future life, that he may inflict on them even more dreadful torment, he so often treats his own believing people with greater severity. Not because they have sinned more grievously, but that he may mortify. He may mortify the sins of the flesh for the future. Sometimes, too, he does not look at their sins. Long-suffering, but only tries their obedience or trains them to patience, as we see or recall with Job. A righteous man and one that feareth God was made miserable beyond all other men, and yet it is not on account of his sin that he was sorely distressed, but the design of God was different. It was to show that his pity might be more fully ascertained even when one's in adversity. Now, there are false interpreters, therefore, who says that all affliction without any distinction are exempt from the account of the sins, as if the measure of punishments were equal, or as if God looked at nothing else but punishing men to what they deserve. Wherefore, now there are two things that's going to be observed to contradict this. That first, Peter 4.17 states, The time will come that judgment, when it comes, must begin at the house of the Lord. And consequently, while he passes by the wicked, he punishes his own people with severity when they have offended and correctly correcting the simple actions of the church. His strides are far more severe that he can convey on us. Therefore, we ought to observe that there are various reasons why he afflicts men. For even he gave Peter and Paul, who were no more less wicked than the robbers who hung with him, 
even he gave them into the hands of the executioners. Hence, we should infer we cannot always put our fingers on the causes of the punishments which God has men endure. Hmm. Well then, let's even bring it back full circle. And the two robbers that were brought forth that's, that hung with the Messiah, we would not come to see them in John uh, when we get to uh, seeing uh, our Lord in, in his trial. But it's in Luke where this adage was brought forward. And as the two men hung, the other stated, and was very interesting, Are you not the Christ? Save us and save yourself. But by verse number 40, the other robber rebuked the first one. And he states, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? You're not going anywhere. This is the time to be begging for mercy. This is the time to look at your trial and tribulation and repent. So what did this robber then do? He then states by verse 41, We indeed suffer justly, and we are receiving what our deeds deserve. But the man in the middle, this man, has done nothing wrong. So knowing who he is, Note, <laughs> at verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And what does the Lord does? And providing counseling to his soul at his time of death. Not even indicating, not even indicating to the man so much of his sin. But the fact that in order to bring him into where he's going, he had to hang with him. I truly, truly, I say today, you shall be with me in paradise. This ties back to our latter clause and to my title. It was so that the works of God might be displayed. Calvin denoted Job, a man who was righteous, and God dealt with him harshly. But Job could not see the works of God at hand. Why? Why did he not so? Was it because you know, God wanted to show that sin could be proven, that he could prove God wrong? Absolutely not. Job 1, 6-12 tells you very clearly what Satan's intents were. No. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in Job. And in full effect, as we come to verse number four and five, and I've actually reached close to my conclusion here. The purpose of the work that the Messiah was to show to be displayed in him now has come into effect because the appointed time to which the work was to be done to the individual was at hand. Therefore, neither corruption nor time can hold the Messiah from doing his work. 
The man was blinded since birth. <laughs> That's not going to stop the Messiah from doing what he needed to do. Surely it must have been sin that prevented, that caused this man to be blinded. Nope, that is not the case. Not the case of thinking it. It was so that my work will be done so that everyone who takes to this adage, who takes to the gospel of this book, just like it states in John 20, you will see the sign so you will believe that he is him. That he has come, he's done the work, and because he's done the work, your faith should grow. It wasn't a joke when he told Thomas, Blessed is the man who believes and yet did not see me. Nothing can prevent the Messiah from doing the will of the Father. And in verse 4, he lightened his work to do the will of the Father as a man has been fitted to do work that is common. He works during the day and he rests at night. Psalms 104, 22 to 23, David states, The sun ariseth and gives, and they gather together and they lay them down in their dens. But a man goes forth until his work is done and his labor is finished until the evening. So then likewise, our Lord concurs, we must carry out the work of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. And what's amazing is that now in verse 4, he does a comparison of his work to do the will of the Father as to a laborer's man working day and night. He then brings back his adage, his axiom that was brought in chapter number 8, of which he denotes it. I am the light of the world. But he provides a precursor. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. See here, he denotes another comparison and that Alike to the common man task of working day and night, he takes that comparison to his life and death. He shows that while I am here for a little while longer, my glory will shine forth as I carry out the work of him who sent me. And it will be on that appointed day until the work of the Father, I'm sorry, the will of the Father who sent me is set for completion on his work, I mean, on this earth. You're going to witness and see water become to wine. John 2. Healing a royal official son at Capernaum. John 4. Healing a lame man in Bethesda. John 5. Feeding 5,000 individuals and walking on water. John 6. Now we come to verses 6 to 12 in this chapter where he'll now add to this particular work. And because this work was necessary, it was necessary for them, for those who were to believe, especially as me and Jason continues to get through chapter 9, you will see the evidence of those who do and those who don't. And what your theology can do in even corrupting your own faith. As you see here, he's correcting the disciples. But all that has transpired 
And again, if there's anything I want you to get from this sermon, all that is transpired is that whatever you see that transpires in life, no matter what, it was done so because the work of God must be displayed. If it's, it could be for judgment, but we don't know. It could be so that the individuals who seeing it will see and fear and run towards repentance, but we don't know. We would have our own issues in life. Maybe it's because when you see something transpire, you have a thought in your mind where you're like, you know what? I haven't read my Bible in three weeks. Maybe I should go and read my Bible. I'm not saying that's what anybody's doing here. I'm just conveying a suggestion as to what could transpire. All the events that transpire in your life, whether sinful or not, are so that the displays of work that God hand is in your life is at work. But the question then remains on you and individuals who are watching because this might be their first exposure to Presbyterian thought or reformed thinking, or this might be someone who will be watching in the future, given that they've come from having their Sunday best put on or their Easter uh, suit, how, how they placed it. But this effect on this day, as you hear this message, are you compelled to repent of your sins and come to obedience? Because truth be told, had Adam obeyed, and this is going back to memory lane. The blind man would have never been blind. In fact, we would have never known death. In fact, when Adam, when Eve gives birth, she just keeps giving birth. And they multiply. And we bless the world. And we subdue it. And we're obedient. But you know the difference here? Even at the sheer effect of Adam's disobedience. If Adam had not sinned, we would have been glorifying Adam. But what was the mystery extolled to us in Ephesians 1? So that we will glorify Christ. And that's why everything transpired from the beginning. Everything is going to transpire in the present and everything is going to transpire in the future. So that Christ can be glorified. Individuals today who go to various churches and hear a message being preached about him being risen, he did need to rise. He needed to rise in order to complete the will of the Father set before him on this earth. But you know, they try to simplify the resurrection to just the temporal. No, Jason brought it up well last week, and I want to make sure it's reiterated again, even for today. At, when Adam died, he died spiritually, temporal, or the physical, and eternally. You can see that all in John 3. I'm sorry, in um, Genesis 3. But the resurrection does take an effect spiritually, physically, and eternally. Spiritually, you were dead in sins and you've been made alive in Christ. Ephesians 2. 
temporally you will be ha you will have your physical bodies raised from the dead of John 5 but then eternally you will be with the Lord and doing what Adam couldn't do and that was obey but it's not because of you it was because of the spirit that God has indwelled you with. The whole man must be brought back. Not a partial. The whole man. So let's therefore consider that at any point in time, no matter what transpires to us, no matter where we see other individuals, let's take encouragement. If they're not a Christian, encourage them with the understanding of the gospel and their need to repent. But if they are a Christian and they do take to a life of adversity or trials and tribulations, let's not do what our sinful nature wants us to do and procure judgment. Let's go ahead and extol them with the understanding. This is an opportunity so that the work of God might be displayed in you. Shall we pray?